0: Uh, now today, we are going to have an interesting conversation because today the passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and this, the title is The Gifts of Marriage and Singleness. Now we're going to unpack what all that Paul says. This is a, if you look at this whole chapter and just read it straight through, it is a very confusing chapter at, at, on the surface, but we're going to focus on certain aspects It's also got 40 verses, and I can't cover 40 verses in 20 to 25 minutes, so I decided to break it up some and just give you little samplings of what Paul is saying throughout this talk. Now, we know that in our culture, everybody doesn't see these two things, marriage and singleness, as gifts. For example, the great theologian, Chris Rock, once said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? That's kind of how he views both of these things. Kind of a negative take on each one, right? Um, but it does kind of put, I think, highlight the issue that we see in our culture at times. And some people think of marriage as being better and singleness as not being so good. Other people see singleness as being great and marriage is not so good. Chris Rock finds the negative in both, apparently. Um, so he asked that question. And, uh, but some people see marriage or singleness as a curse, but Paul says that both are a gift. And we're going to see how he pack, unpacks this today. Now listen, last week, I appreciate Caleb delving into some, you know, some interesting issues last week. I know it's a, those, those are tough conversations. Uh, but 1 Corinthians, we've talked to you about the struggles of this church and so, really, some of the chapters are PG-13, maybe PG-10 or 11 or 12, but uh, today's going to be similar to that. And so, um, right out of the gate, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. Now, concerning the matters about which he wrote, now this is a statement that the Corinthians were saying, not what Paul was saying. That's why it's in quotes. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So right out of the gate, chapter 7, that's what Paul wants to talk about. Now, like I said, uh, the quotations are really important. because Let's let's stop right here, because when you study the Bible, you've got to understand context. It's so important that you understand that. Because the Corinthians had written Paul a letter asking many questions, and 1 Corinthians is Paul's answer to their questions. So when Paul says this phrase in quotation marks, those are not Paul's words. That was a statement the Corinthians made in their letter to Paul. So he's quoting them and what they said to him, and his response is what follows afterwards. If someone's new to the Bible and you're reading along, you're not paying attention to context and like quotation marks and those kinds of things, then you might read that statement and go, wait, does God want everybody to be single? Like, see, it's right here in the Bible where God wants everyone to be single. That's not what it's saying. The bigger question is why did some people in the church believe this statement right here that they're asking Paul about? Why did the church believe that statement that, they're, that they sent to Paul in their letter? You might say, well, I thought that Corinth was this crazy party town and really permissive uh, with how they lived. And so why would, they, why would anyone think that statement is true that w- what Paul just wrote back to them? Well, it was a crazy party town. In fact, uh, many people were living sinful lifestyles, and some of those people were in the church and part of the church. Even those who claim Christ, many were walking and living in, in sexual sin. But what can happen when, when those things are taking place in the body of Christ, as some people embrace sin and a compromised lifestyle, other people go the opposite direction, and they can embrace legalism. And that, that's what was happening in the church at Corinth as well. So, for example, if you grew up, in a family that was just like real permissive and just you saw a lot of sin and brokenness in your family, it's often what will happen is if someone becomes a Christian out of that family that they might go the other extreme and become really legalistic about some things and add some rules to their life because they saw the destruction and brokenness of sin playing out in their family all the time. And they might say, I don't want to go that direction, so I'm going to go this other direction. And they almost like overreact in the, in the opposite way and add a bunch of rules and legalism to their life that might be unnecessary. That can happen sometimes in people's lives. That's happening there in the church. So in a place, you can see how in a place like Corinth, where visiting prostitutes was the norm, you can see how somebody might conclude, listen, it's good to avoid sexuality altogether. And they were saying this even in the context of the marriage covenant there were some that had this attitude. And this is too much to get into, but the the church has a long history of church leaders saying really awful things about sexuality. All kinds of, there's all kinds of rules that the Roman Catholic Church created over the years. Don't have time to unpack all those. But people were saying this is true in the context even of marriage. So here's Paul's response in verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So, Paul, what Paul does is he holds up sexuality within marriage, and he says, This is good and right, and it's God honoring. Now, I can understand why some Christians have difficulty viewing it this way, because uh, before marriage, what do we tell you, we say, Listen, before you get married, anything sexual, the answer is no, 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 wait till marriage, right? But once you're married, we say it it is good and right and God-honoring. And really, that can be confusing to most Christians because nothing else is like that, right? So stealing, lying, coveting, always wrong. Murder, always wrong. We don't say murder is wrong unless you commit murder with your spouse. Like, we don't say that, right? It's always wrong. So, sex inside of marriage is the only thing where before you're married, we say, no, this would be sinful outside outside of the marriage covenant, but once you're married, it's honoring to God. It's the only thing that I can think of that's like that, and so it can be confusing to some young Christians. There are two ways I think people can struggle once they get into marriage. For those that have followed God's design and maybe lived in purity before marriage, once they're married... Some struggle to view sex and marriage as God's gift. Some struggle with that. But then some people who have lived in sexual sin before marriage, and they might struggle with that idea because they always associate it in their minds with something that was sinful in the earlier part of their lives. And both of those responses are not healthy responses and biblical responses, as you'll see today in this passage. Now, it can seem like at your stage of life, Like God is holding out on you That God is keeping good things from you I assure you He is not When you look at God's uh, God's vision for Sexuality in the context of marriage The Bible has verses like this that says hey this is for the marriage covenant God designed it God created it And it is a gift to humanity And so I know it's hard to understand that now At your stage of life And it, it just feels like everyone's just saying no all the time Well there's a reason for that But in the context of marriage, this is a gift from God and actually brings him glory, I think, as a result. So look at verse 4, next couple of verses. And uh, these first words may shock you, but bear with me. So it says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, again, context. If you take a verse and you say, only focus on one verse, you're going to have some issues. You've got to see the whole thing together. Because unfortunately, men throughout the ages have used just that one f- phrase in, that, in, that, in, that, in, that, in verse 4, uh, they've used that one idea as justification to control women and to intimidate them and abuse them. It has happened throughout church history. And yes, sexual abuse happens even in the context of marriage. It can happen that way. So to any man who says that, you know, listen, once I'm married, look at this verse, I get to be the boss, tell her what to do with her body, and she can argue about it. Well, again, keep reading, because what does it say? According to this passage, she also has authority over his body, meaning that She has every right to tell her husband to stop using his body to terrify, intimidate, and abuse her. You see the mutuality in this passage. And listen, this is not about having authority over someone's body in an abusive way. Because Paul just continues the argument that sex in marriage is a gift from God, so don't deprive one another of that gift. Uh, there's this idea all throughout a lot of Paul's letters that when you marry someone, you, you're no longer independent, but you're now interdependent, depending upon one another. And that's meant to be mutual, not just to be a one-way street where one person has all the power and control. It's not what this is about. You see, in that world, the world that Paul's writing into, men were the ones that had the power many men would see their wives as property or as objects that they owned. And what they would do is they might see the marriage relationship as just kind of a practical relationship where there wasn't a whole lot of affection or love for that person, unfortunately. And they might, these people in the church would maybe go out, the men would go out and be with prostitutes and see that as where they would get their fulfillment and see the home relationship as simply just a practical home relationship, and that was all that it was to them. This was happening in that culture, but also, I believe, there in the church in Corinth. And for, for many, I, I think, when you, when you look at the statement Paul's making here, this is a radical statement for Paul to make in that culture. Because it was a culture where the men had the power, and so Paul, right here, is saying, no, there's, an equal, there's equality here. There's a mutuality here. Um, it's a radical statement because it raised women to the level of men in the marriage context, and Paul saw them as equal partners in the marriage relationship. So for many centuries, men have seen women as objects to be used for their own pleasure, and this is a sinful idea, and it's wrong. But today what happens is some women think that equality means they should play the same game right along with the men. So they say, if they treat me as an object, well, I'll treat them as an object. And that's how, that's a secular view of equality, is that they treat me this way, well, I'll treat them this way, the exact same way. And they see it as as taking power from the men and empowering themselves. But listen, everyone loses in this equation. So we throw these words around, like words like love and lust and like what's the difference of those things. Well, here's how uh, C.S. Lewis defines this. Lust is going after the body. Love is going after the person. Lust is going after someone and seeing them only as an object and you are separating their soul from their body and see them only as a body. Love, I believe, keeps those two things together, soul and body, and sees someone as a whole person made in God's image, and you're not separating out body from soul. I think what happens in our culture is our, our culture downplays the soul and, and holds up the body and says, no, no, we're just, we're just physical beings. That's all we are. So who cares what you do and who you do that with because we're just physical beings, and that's really all we're comprised of. But in the church, I think we struggle on the other side of the coin where we might see downplay the body itself but then hold up the soul and see it only as a spiritual idea and i think paul here is keeping both together that body and soul you've got to see yourself and other people as both connected body and soul if we're going to view sexuality in a biblical way look at verse six it says now as a concession not a command i say this i wish that all whereas i myself am but each has his own gift from god one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, most believe that Paul was single and never married. There's debate about that, but I lean towards the idea that he was single, stayed single throughout his life. And he says, I wish everyone could be single like me. Now, you might say, wait, what? Wouldn't that... Wouldn't that end the human race if everyone was like Paul? Well, he just means, as we'll show later in this message, that there are kingdom advantages to being single. But he still calls both a gift from God. You'll see in this, in this passage, hopefully, that Paul is walking this tightrope. And at times, he seems to almost contradict some things. But you'll see, hopefully, that he, he, um, he himself is single— And there are times where he's speaking out of that and saying, yeah, there's some advantages to being single and and being on mission for God. There's some advantages to that. But he still calls both singleness and marriage a gift from God, I believe, throughout the the, the main part of this passage. So in our world today, uh, people idolize the single life as long as they can still go out, meet people, maybe sleep around. And they tend to worship their independence. Um, they want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. And you'll see that happen a lot in our culture today. But in the church, we may have the opposite issue. We sometimes idolize marriage, and if someone's single, we send the direct or indirect message that they need to get married. We do that sometimes in the church. Whether we say it or not, we put pressure on people sometimes. For example, many uh, whenever someone... What do we do if we know someone that's around marrying age? And uh, what do we do typically if they're single? We try to set people up sometimes, right? Um, I've done this before where I, many years ago when I first came to Temple, uh, my wife's brother, Colin, was going to move down here and go to UMHB. And so he was around, like early 20s, and, and so coming into town after we moved here to go to school. And I had just met this woman named Tori at a newcomer's brunch here at TBC, and I recruited her to be a junior high intern with us here in the Outback, and uh, she went back to her hometown for the summer and was going to come back in the fall and serve, and when she came back into town, we were like, hey, Colin, we got this girl we want you to meet. We think you're going to like her, and so we had this whole scheme planned. My wife and I, we had uh, invited her to our house for dinner, and then didn't tell them they were going to both be there at the same time and invited him over for dinner. It's like, hey, look, we're here all together. And so it was the four of us having dinner, and so it was kind of awkward at first, but then afterwards, Colin got her number, and they started talking and hanging out, and now they're married and have four children, all right? And listen, I make sure I remind them all the time that I'm the one that set them up, all right? And uh, every birthday party for the kids, my nieces and nephews, I'm like, hey, guys, you exist because of me, all right? You have me to thank for that. And uh, so... So listen, um, we always we're always thinking of ways we can set people up whenever they're in that early marrying age. That happens, of course, in the church. But it's not a bad idea for those things to happen in the context of the church. If someone desires marriage, that's okay for us to do. But if someone is content being single and they are using their singleness to further God's kingdom, we shouldn't put pressure on them to get married. We shouldn't do that. I heard I heard a story. I heard a story about a single guy. It's not true, but it's funny. Uh, whenever he would go to weddings, little old ladies would point their finger at him and say, you're next, you're next. He got so tired of it that he decided to return the favor, so he started attending funerals. And when he would see those same ladies, he would point at them and say, you're next, you're next, all right? It's a fictitious story, I know, but it's, it was funny. I like that. But listen, Paul says that both... Marriage and singleness are a gift, but neither should be idols. Neither should be idols. Now, these next verses, we're going to skip over some and summarize some here. And these next verses are about divorce and remarriage. Now, you might think that this doesn't relate to you, this this, this idea of divorce and remarriage, but obviously it does, uh, because some of you have been impacted uh, really negatively by divorce, and. Um, even if your mom or dad had biblical grounds for it, that doesn't take away the pain that you've had to walk through because of it. And that's just acknowledging reality. And so in addition, the seeds of divorce are often sown early in someone's life. Now, I'm not saying that you're destined for it by any means and that you can't do anything about that, but I simply mean that in high school, college, young adulthood is when people make some of the most important decisions of their lives, but they do so when they're still a bit immature. This is why I think seeking the wisdom of other people um, that are in your life, friends, pastors, shepherds, disciple makers, is paramount before you step into marriage. Before you even step into a dating relationship, I, I would recommend that you seek out the wisdom of people that are in your life before you start walking down that road towards something like that so um, we're going to summarize uh, just verses 10 through 16 quickly. The idea here is that God has a high view of marriage and that we often see re- relationships ex- as expendable. And that happens even in the church, that we see relationships as expendable. And people some, at, at times can flippantly go to divorce when they think that things are just more difficult than they should be. And God has a high view of marriage. Um, that we see that in the scriptures. But also in the Bible, we see Two exceptions for divorce, it's sexual immorality and also abandonment. Now, there is way too much to unpack with those two ideas right now, and it's not the time for that. But those are the two exceptions that we see in the, in the Bible, is, is immorality sexually and also abandonment if there's a believer, and maybe a believer or unbeliever just abandons them in some way. And there's all kinds of ways in which I believe abandonment can play out in a marriage. It may not just be physically leaving. There could be other things as well that I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this morning. But what about if someone is a believer, but they marry an unbeliever? Or what if two unbelievers get married and one becomes a Christian afterwards? What about that? What well, Paul says in this passage for them to stay married. And this does not mean, so in our context now, your context right now, this does not mean that you should date an unbeliever. I believe that you should be not uh unequally yoked, but you should look for someone who is a solid Christ follower, and um, otherwise you enter into an entangling relationship that's going to cause you to compromise your faith at some point. I would also ask the unbeliever, why would you want to marry a believer? Like you're going to clash with them as much as they're going to clash with you over this, over these belief issues. So how you date is how you marry, how you date is how you're going to marry. The pattern that you're going to have in a marriage is a pattern that will play out early in your dating life. And I think the seeds of divorce are often sown at the stage of life in which you're at right now. So skip down to verse 25. And we see in verse 25 that there is this freedom that Paul talks about for people to stay single if that's where they feel like God is leading them. So, verse 25 to 28, where it says, Now concerning the betrothed. Now, this word betrothed simply just means the unmarried or someone who's a virgin. That's what the word actually means in the the Greek. Um, Later, it implies engaged. We'll talk about that later on, engagement. But Paul says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, Are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, so Paul says, if you're single, I have no command from God for you to get married. You are free to stay single. But then he mentions this present distress. So what is that? Well, many believe it's a food distress shortage or maybe persecution in the church. So if you're single, it wouldn't make sense to get married right now, but in the middle of this present crisis is what Paul is saying. He's saying if life is hard, it's harder when you have a family, right? So I think of the people right now, uh, my analogy was is is I was going to talk about Ukraine because about a year and a half ago, Ukraine got invaded by Russia. And you think about all that they've walked through the last 18 months, if you're single and you're Ukrainian, then you only have to worry about yourself in the context of war and and when things are in turmoil and crisis. But if you've got a family, just think of a family trying to walk through this crisis in the Ukraine right now, or right now, of course, over in Israel. You've got a lot more concerns if you've got a wife and several children in the context of a crisis like that. So Paul says, if you have a wife, of course, stay with her. But if you don't, it's okay to stay single right now. But if you choose to marry, it's not that you've sinned. You've got freedom to, the, to do that as well. So this is where Paul's walking this, this tightrope. The application for us today, some people fret over God's will about marriage and singleness. They say, you know, should I get married? Should I stay single? And I would just say, listen, if you're of age and you're a solid believer, and they're a solid believer as well, then a great question to ask is, what do I desire to do? Sometimes we think that God is is killjoy, and there's no way that he will allow me to marry if I desire that because God wants to steal my joy and not give me good things. But he's given you freedom here. Neither option is sinful. So in your heart of hearts, what do you desire to do? Is a good question for you to ask. Now, I'll summarize for you verses 29 to 35, where the, the big idea, because the first few verses of that section are confusing, but Paul is saying, don't live as, you, if, as if you can find ultimate satisfaction in your marriage status, or anything else, for that matter. That's a summary of those uh, six or so verses. And then skip down to verse 36. It says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Now, this is where I was saying how the word betrothed can imply someone who's engaged, not just someone who's unmarried. If if a couple is betrothed or engaged to one another, and they are struggling to stay physically pure, Paul says, let them get married. It's not a sin to get married. And here's what this verse implies. That means if you're not married— then it would be sinful to be messing around with them physically, even if you're serious about the relationship or even engaged to that person. You understand the implication of what Paul's saying here. Until she's your wife, she's your sister in Christ. Until he's your husband, he is your brother in Christ. So you both work to protect the purity of the relationship before marriage. Too often today, I meet couples here in the church who claim Christ, but they're living in sexual sin, or they're living together, and they think they can just ignore God's Word and live however they want, and they often will show up to the church and say, hey, we want to get married, and they come to us wanting us to perform perform their wedding, and we ask them those difficult, awkward questions, say, hey, well, I'm going to ask you some hard questions. Here's Here's my questions. Are you living together right now? Are you involved sexually with each other? And if they say yes. I say, listen, I'm going to invite you. I very graciously walk them through what the Bible says about that and try to lead them towards repentance in hope that they'll listen and heed God's word and back up a bit and separate for some time geographically and start doing this the God-honoring honoring way. And I will say that whenever, I, whenever I've offered that to someone, I can't recall a time when they've said, when they've said yes to that almost every time they have said, yeah, we're not interested in that. And they go somewhere else and find somewhere else to do their wedding. And listen, I love doing weddings. I really want to do weddings. But I I can't just turn a blind eye to someone living and walking in sin and say, hey, we're going to put our stamp of approval on this right now because right now, you're not living how God wants you to live. And those are difficult conversations for us to have. But I think God wants us to walk in purity before marriage, and this, I think this verse supports that. Now, I've had to say no to a lot of weddings, and that is kind of depressing to me because I love doing weddings. But then Paul moves on to uh, this other idea here, and it's the freedom that you're going to need to handle singleness well. And this is in verses 37 and 38 where it says, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, in the ancient world, marriage was expected for almost everyone, but in Corinth, it was the opposite. I've told you before how uh, Corinth is this ambitious, prosperous city, and people thought that marriage might get in the way of their personal aspirations. That might sound like places that you might think of, like New York City, San Francisco, places where there's just a big city, a lot of single people. And the Corinthian Christians might be feeling pulled in two different directions. They might be feeling this pressure to get married by those that are in the church, but pressure to stay single by those out there in the culture. It's similar to today. So Paul is saying, Doing something just because you feel the pressure from other people is never a good reason to do anything. So whether it's marriage or singleness, someone needs to be, you see the word here, it says firmly established in their heart. They've got to be firmly established in their heart. We've got to be free from the social pressure if we're going to handle singleness well. And that pressure can come from the culture, and it can come from the church got to be free of that if we're going to handle singleness well. So here's some bad reasons to stay, to stay single. If someone says, I just want to focus on my career, I don't like the idea of being obligated to somebody else, always, if they're always waiting for someone better to come along, those are bad reasons to stay single. But if you're doing that, if you're, if you're staying single into your early adulthood, because you feel this call from God to serve others, and and god's kingdom and and you feel called to do something kingdom-minded related you're using your singleness for god's glory those are good reasons to stay single now the same goes for marriage there are some good reasons and bad reasons to marry if you want to serve god and serve others those are good reasons to marry but if you want to marry because you just can't imagine life as a single person and you feel incomplete if you're not in a relationship, those are not good reasons to to marry somebody. Because no spouse can really bear the weight and responsibility of being your everything. If your mindset of marriage is like, you know, you complete me, that whole equation, then that's putting way too much pressure on that person and on yourself. You can't be someone's ultimate satisfaction. No human being can. So no spouse can bear the weight of all that. In our culture, the single life out there in the world might be perceived as ultimate bliss, independence from anybody else. But in the church, we at times hold up the marriage life as as we perceive that as where you'll find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. So both of these are, are good, but in their own ways but we're not going to find ultimate fulfillment in either one. So marriage and singleness were never meant to be gods. They were meant to be gifts. So Stephen Um, he says it this way. Learn to see them, so both marriage and singleness, for what they are and treat them that way, not to make them everything, but to use them to love not just your family, but your neighbors too. And you can do that because you have come to know a greater love that frees you to handle it all well. You guys are gonna go to your breakouts, and so if you don't know where to go, come ask me, I'll tell you where to go. Otherwise, y'all can head to breakouts. Uh, Leaders' discussion sheets are at the very back, on top of the sound booth.